Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 104. In one of the children's storybook Bibles I used to read from to my children when they were younger, begin with these words. Do you like to make things? God likes to make things. This beautiful storybook Bible, children's Bible, expresses the creativity and the the wisdom and the power of the divine imagination, who alone can make things real by the word of his power, and directs our attention and draws us to worship this great and awesome God and express our gratitude to the one who has endowed us with Abilities as his image bearers to reflect something of his glory. Tonight, we take time to marvel at the great wonders that God has made, but also to revel in the God who has made all things well and gifted you and I with the privilege of reflecting back to him something of his creative genius. Please follow as I read Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations, so that it should never be moved. You covered it with a deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted, and then the birds build their nest. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. 
O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of God. Father, we would humbly come before you and ask that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Bible makes it clear from the very beginning that there is a divine creator, that the creation did not create itself, nor are we the creator of all things. But rather, the creation is dependent upon the creator and came into existence at a time in the historical past at God's initiative, who made all things ex nihilo, that means out of nothing, out of no pre-existing material, simply by the word of his power. Now, like other accounts of creation from Genesis 1 and 2 and Psalm 8 and Psalm 19, this psalm does not give us an exhaustive account of creation, nor does it explain in detail how God brought about creation. Rather, Psalm 104 offers kinds of snapshots of creation. It's like a a photo book you might create after a vacation to capture the highlights of the trip. There are various categories of creation that, that lead us in appreciation and wonder of all that God has made and all that he continues to care for. God is presented as the great and wise creator and sustainer of all things, who has made all things for his glory and who alone is worthy to be worshipped. And this psalm invites you and I to worship and glorify God and to seek to better understand him through the great wonders he has made, through general revelation in the image of God in man, and thirdly, through special revelation. Well, what is general revelation? Well, it is what we can know about God as we observe creation, as we use our reasoning powers as his creations. Psalm 104 
emphasizes that God is both creator and sustainer. It opens in this psalm with praise of God using his covenant name, Yahweh. The psalmist marvels at God's greatness and his beauty. He is the Lord, clothed in splendor and majesty like the great king that he is. And the the only thing that psalmist can come up with that might cover God is light itself. We know that God made the light before any other thing in creation. The scriptures also speak, says that God is light. That does not mean that God is made up of photons and other particles. Rather, light in scripture is a, a metaphor speaking of God's truth and righteousness and holiness. The passage speaks of the Lord stretching out the heavens like a tent from the vantage point of man looking up at the great expanse of the sky. And what's beautiful here is it, it, it seems to be directing towards the pious, faithful Israelite families in the Old Testament era who would travel up to Jerusalem three times a year on pilgrimage to worship the Lord at the annual feast, and the families would sleep in tents. Paul, we know, in the book of Acts, was a tent maker who would craft uh, the gear families would need to make up their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem on annual or three times a year. And we can only imagine how many fathers and mothers who were traveling with their children would look up at the night sky and remind their children of God's promise to them, that their descendants would outnumber the stars and the heavens. Now, to the naked human eye, we can see about 9,000 stars in the sky. But scientists tell us that our galaxy alone has something on the order of 100 billion stars, just like our sun. And we also understand that our universe is made up of at least 100 billion galaxies, some bigger or some smaller than our own galaxy. And so the best estimates conclude that there's something on the order of one followed by 22 zeros if we would count the number of stars in all of the universe. In fact, there are more stars in the universe than there are individual grains of sand on all the seashores of our planet. It's astounding. The power and the magnitude and the wisdom of our God who made all things well. Verses 3 through 5 go on to offer metaphoric language regarding water and wind and the earth, pointing to the greatness of God and the wonders that he has made. He is described like a builder who lays forth the beams of his bedroom chambers upon the seas. He is like a mighty warrior who rides on the clouds as though they were his chariot. He makes the winds his messengers to perform his bidding. The Lord sets the earth upon a firm foundation that it might not be moved. Now, we need to be careful when interpreting this language not to bring to it a 
modernistic, scientific, literalistic interpretation and recognize that this is poetry, the, the genre of wisdom literature. And the Bible here is not teaching us that the earth doesn't move. Uh, this passage is not denying a heliocentric understanding of the solar system or positing that the sun and the stars move around the earth. But from our vantage point, the earth rises and sets. There's phenomenomical language, phenomenological language from the viewpoint of man as he looks up at uh, the sky above. What scripture here and elsewhere is communicating is that God has made a secure dwelling place for his people to flourish. He goes on to say that God has covered the earth with water like a garment, but has also set the proper boundaries with an allusion to the flood and establishing those boundaries that a great flood might not cover the earth again. Now, Genesis chapter 1 is very clear in making mankind the climax of creation. Man and woman made in God's image and invested with dominion over the earth. And in that dominion, we as God's uh, crown of uh, crown bearers of, of creation are given the task of working the land and managing the livestock and pursuing knowledge and discovery of all the wondrous things that God has made. Some 20 years ago, a Christian physicist wrote a book called The Privileged Planet, and in it he described how from the vantage point of an astrophysicist, the Earth and its location is in a unique position to explore and discover the wonders of our solar system, our galaxy, and the greater universe. In fact, the Earth is so well positioned, it's like a laboratory of discovery. In fact, our location within the Milky Way galaxy, we're like two-thirds of the way out from the center of the Milky Way galaxy. If we were closer in, things would be too bright. We couldn't see. We would be blinded by just particles and light in in, uh, the solar system, in the, the space around us. Uh, other important things to point out is that the moon is the same size as the sun in the sky. So that when there is a, a solar eclipse, that, that light has to bend coming around the moon. And it's only a hundred and something years ago that scientists were able to understand what the sun was made of by the way light was bending around uh, the moon at an eclipse. Some estimate that there are something like 700 quintillion planets in all of our universe. And I remain among those who are convinced that there is only one Earth. From a probability point of view, it is not likely that there is another planet with the right conditions to support life. Sometimes it's called the the Goldilocks principle, that things are just right, for life to uh, flourish on this place called Earth, uh, and it would would rightly appear that things are fine-tuned to support life. The tilt of the Earth 
is such so that water can stay liquid. If the earth was not tilted, water would either freeze or uh, evaporate off and not be in a liquid state. The nature of water, that water expands when it freezes. Very unusual in the natural world. If it it didn't do that, it would crush all the 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 water life, uh, the uh, animals and plants underneath the surface of, of the water. We uh, enjoy a consistent temperature. Unlike Venus, which is way too hot, and Mars, which is way too cold, where our planet has an iron core giving us a magnetic field that protects us from the sun's radiation. Our atmosphere is made mostly of nitrogen, which is a very calm gas, and then oxygen and carbon dioxide to give us and the plants air to breathe. Our planet is rocky and solid and not a gas giant. The the moon is made to govern the tides. In fact, if we did not have a moon, each day would be about four hours long. The moon actually gives a stable spinning of the earth and keeps us at a nice, stable uh, 24-hour daytime of, of rotation of the earth. We have the great planets in our solar system, like Jupiter and Saturn, that protects us from meteorites and asteroids that can easily wipe us out. And another interesting point is the fact that we only have one star. Most solar systems in the universe, in fact, 85% of all our solar systems have binary stars. And can you imagine all the gravitational problems if there were two stars competing for rotation and uh, spinning and uh, the uh, uh, orbit around uh, the sun. So all of these things, all these details from science indicate strongly that, that God has given us a safe and secure dwelling place to flourish and to magnify and to pursue the greater knowledge of the Lord our God. So our text also presents in verses 10 and following that God is our sustainer. He is not a deistic clockmaker who set things spinning and withdrew. Rather, he is quite intimate with his creation. He makes the rivers gush that his creatures might have drink. He causes the grass to grow to feed the livestock. Man will till the soil and sow and water the seed, and yet God makes the vegetation grow. It's God's provision and man's toil that brings food to the earth, the blessings of wine and oil and bread. Psalm 104 paints a picture of great abundance, that the earth is abounding with resources, that when cultivated by man, as God has called him to be stewards of these precious gifts, serves to benefit all peoples. The trees are water, the birds have places to nest. In fact, there are places for all kinds of creatures, those that are useful, those that are not so useful to mankind, the rock badger, for instance. And the psalm points to the fact that God has given order, order to the universe, the moon to govern the night and the day and to mark off the seasons, that we have day and night for labor and for rest and pointing out the different kinds of animals that are active in the daytime and the nighttime. All of this is presented in an Edenic, idyllic fashion. And the psalmist is not ignoring sin. He's not ignoring 
uh, the brokenness and fallenness of creation, and we'll get to that at the end of the psalm, doesn't deny the, the selfish impact of sinners upon God's good creation. But here, the psalmist is emphasizing plenty rather than scarcity. Blessing, not curse. Joy, not sorrow. As God's people embrace the Lord's will to work the soil, to uphold their role, our role, as keepers of the world entrusted to us to enjoy and cultivate its precious bounty. God's word teaches that we ought to respect creation, not worship it. Steward it, not exploit it. We, as God's image bearers, have been given dominion over the earth, but we are still his servants working it for our rightful king. And we, as God's crowning achievement over his creation, are over the animals who are here for our benefit and our enjoyment. The animals do not merit the same rights as man, yet need to be properly cared for. And so, as God's people, we ought to respond to the fears and hysterias of our age, whether it's climate or scarcity or other concerns, and must stand firm with a calm confidence that God has provided a world of abundance that is more than adequate for large populations of people to flourish on this unique blue planet as we reflect God's glory as his image bearers. So what what does it mean to bear the image of God? We know that it means we are above the animals, made a little lower than the angels, as it says in Psalm 8. But we were made to know God and to know his redemption, something the angels do not experience. And we're also called to reflect something of God's character and righteousness. So even in this psalm's observations of all of creation, it's a beautiful expression of rationality and thoughtful poetry and creativity. In verse 24, he cries, O Lord, how manifold are your works. So, so merely beholding the glories of creation, the psalmist is exasperated, struggling to give utterance to his thoughts and his feelings as he observes and reflects upon the wise and gracious nature of our God. But beyond God's might and wisdom, is there anything of God's nature that we may glean from mere general revelation, by mere observation of the world? Well, the world is filled with variety and abundance, uh, so God would seem to have great delight uh, in the abundance and variety and the diversity of all that he has made. There is much beauty and order in creation that obviously pleases our God. And God has made abundant provision, a demonstration of his kindness and his generosity. So, so man's ability to observe these things, to reflect upon them, to reason from them, and even write uh, verse to express admiration and awe is something unique to man, made in God's image, that we might know him and reflect his holy and righteous character. Speaking of Christ, Paul says in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's the Judeo-Christian worldview that has given rise to science and even the idea of progress in the world. The Bible gives us a foundation understanding a personal and eternal God, that creation is separate from God. Paul, speaking to the pagan philosophers at Areopagus, speaks of the God who made the world and everything in it. And so science in the Western world, in the Christianized West of the prior millenniums, was widespread because of the faith and the possibility of science and progress. Christian theology is essential for the rise of a rational understanding of God and his creation. And it's what gave early scientists confidence to search into the nature of things and to vindicate faith and rationality. You look at the false gods, the images of the gods of the pagan world, and those gods were so irrational and impersonal that it could never have sustained science. But belief in the God of the Bible as our intelligent designer of a rational universe, people like Newton and Kepler and Galileo and other thinkers uh, were able to flower in the sciences in the 16th and 17th centuries. Those who regarded creation as a book that was to be read and to be comprehended. And so we need to be mindful of the many advantages of the Judeo-Christian Worldview and, and the gift it has brought to the modern world. Faith and reason and progress, a linear view of history, a affirmation of human dignity and rights, the importance of the individual. Unlike Buddhism, that teaches that the individual is an illusion that will be destined for impermanence. The Christian promise of immortality of the individual person reminds us that what we do counts for eternity. The material world is not an illusion or something to be spiritually transcended. It's not an incomprehensible mystery. It's something to be studied, understood by other personal, rational beings. To our passage, it references the various works of man. Tilling the earth, producing from its soil, building, sailing vessels, engaging in trade. And and this work is is a kind of science, a kind of taxonomy written as as a work of poetry. In Scripture and other places, we see how God raises up artisans, the crafters and designers of the tabernacle and the temple, uh, who designed the architecture and the furnishings of the houses of worship for ancient Israel. In the days of Moses, a man named Bezalel of the tribe of Judah said was filled with the Spirit of God, given skill, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship that he might devise the artistic designs of the tabernacle in gold, silver, and bronze. And so the Bible gives great affirmation to the things that we create, the things that we design, the things that we offer for the glory of God and the good of our 
fellow man. And so, as believers tonight, we are reminded that God does call us to redeem the sciences, to rescue it from the ravages of naturalistic Darwinism, affirming that science was born out of a Judeo-Christian worldview and even makes science possible. We are called also to reclaim the arts, to express truth, beauty, and goodness in music and literature and the visual and performing arts, the incarnation and resurrection of Christ, have inspired more works of art than any other event in human history. God calls each of us to pursue good things, to worship him, to know him, to serve him for his glory. And God blesses all men with knowledge, wisdom, and skill, whether they acknowledge him or not. So we can flow through this psalm, and it seems so beautiful and idyllic and conflict and problem-free until we get to the last verse. It's that last verse that, that brings the, the minor key to the story. That, that all things are going well, all things are beautiful and wonderful. And now we have a reference to sinners. Why? Why does the psalmist do that? Well, I believe that the psalmist inserts this reference to sinners, recognizing that, that while we can know much about God from general revelation, and we can reason our way towards some knowledge of God, without special revelation, we are lost. We, we are sinners condemned under the holy wrath of God. We are no longer in Eden. We are far removed from the beauty and the perfection of how God first made the world and our first parents. No, creation itself is not sufficient for any saving knowledge of the living God. And though the world is filled with evidence, the evidences of God are everywhere, and yet men left to themselves will not turn, will not worship the living God. Man is Rational, the rational image bearer of God, and can reason his way through many problem solving sessions, and yet his reason is inadequate. To be restored into right fellowship with God without God's giving of his revelation in his word. We can discern God as creator, sustainer, his wisdom, his power through many observations of creation. But to know God as judge and redeemer is foreign to our sin-cursed minds without his Holy Spirit and the power of his word. And so in verse 32 and following, we have this sound of warning. The Lord who rejoices in his many works looks upon the earth and the earth trembles. God appeared to Moses at Sinai and terrified the people in the appearances of smoke and fire. There, the Lord revealed his law and required his people to be holy. And yet, even those who are without the law, such men are without excuse because the law of the Lord is written on our hearts. The image of God and man is not ignorant 
to the fact that we are accountable to our maker. Verse 34 resounds, let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. The psalmist, after spending many verses extolling the beauty and the power and the wisdom of God, is longing for God to act as judge, to bring forth justice upon the nations. And scripture affirm, uh, assures us the day is coming when sin and evil and corruption will be no more, will be eradicated from the earth as God manifests his righteous renewal of both heaven and earth. But we can be left hearing these words and wondering to ourselves, where is the hope? Where do sinners go? Where does anyone find refuge from this God of wrath? Well, where else would we turn but to God himself? The wicked on the day of God's wrath will call upon the mountains to fall upon them, but they will have nowhere to hide. For you and I and every believer in Christ, our only security, our only place of refuge from God's punishment on sin is in the Lord's saving mercy. The looking to the mediator, the one he has offered up, the one in whom and through whom and by whom all things were created, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our psalm concludes with the words, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. We worship God who is our creator and our redeemer. The one who has made us and made us for, for himself. And though in our sin and our rebellion have turned away from him and brought corruption to his perfect creation, is also the God who will restore all things, who will redeem his people who desires worship, who desires relationship, who desires reconciliation with his people when they call upon him through the Lord Jesus Christ. May we honor God in the arts, in the usage of our creative talents, expressing and reflecting back to God his wisdom and his power. May we redeem the sciences and direct thoughtful minds to search for design, the designs of our maker in this world for his glory and our good. But may we worship our God, our maker, our redeemer, and our friend who has come near to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we testify boldly and gladly that though wrath awaits those who fail to repent, We find refuge and hope and redemption in the God who freely offers his forgiving grace and loving mercy to all those who trust in him, who call upon his name through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do praise you and worship you as the wondrous, brilliant maker of all things. And though we have marred this world by our own sinful rebellion, you are making all things new. And the day will come when we will dwell with you in a new heavens and new earth as your new, restored, resurrected creations. We 
glorify you and magnify you for all the great things you have done and all the great things you are doing and will do. And may we live as lights to reflect your glory before a watching world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.